You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Broadway Gives Back Podcast. I'm your host, Jan Svensson. This podcast spotlights Broadway actors, shows, and organizations in their pursuit of social impact and philanthropy. Join us as some of the brightest lights on Broadway share their stories about their favorite charities and how they got involved and the people and the causes who benefited from these philanthropic efforts. While David Ambrose may not be a household Broadway name, he loves Broadway, and he's worked in the entertainment industry for years, heading up social responsibility for Disney television. David is a national poverty and child welfare expert and advocate. He was recognized by President Obama as an American champion of change and he currently serves as the head of community engagement for Amazon. After growing up homeless and then in foster care, he graduated from Vassar and later from UCLA School of Law. He's just written a memoir, A Place Called Home, about growing up homeless in New York for 11 years and his subsequent years in foster care, offering a window into what so many kids living in poverty experience every day. David is a close friend of mine, and I'm so happy to have him as a guest on Broadway Gives Back. Welcome, David. Good morning. Thank it you. It's so good to have you, and I know it's been a whirlwind for you lately with your new book just being released. How the heck are you? Uh, I'm good. It's so interesting to open up your diary, dear diary, that no one was ever supposed to read in the dark corners of your mind and experiences, and publish it. <laughs> so it's been a remarkable couple of weeks where... I've just shared all aspects of my life with um, with the world, and I, I hope it brings something better into the world. Well, I normally start this podcast with an icebreaker round of some of rapid-fire questions, but I'm not going to do that today with you. Um, instead, I want to read a quote from Hillary Clinton. So, quote, It's impossible to read A Place Called Home and not want to redouble your efforts to fight the systems of poverty that have plagued America for far too long. In this book, David shares his deeply personal story and issues a rousing call to make a more humane and compassionate nation, end quote. The reviews for your book, David, have been raves, and they've garnered so much media attention. I want you to know that I'm listening to the book as an audiobook, which you narrate, and I've been completely captivated by the writing and the story. And then all of a sudden, I'm going to start crying. I'm walking through Central Park listening to the book, and it just hits me. This is my friend. This is your life. And I just started sobbing. <laughs> and I just wondered if you could share some of your story with our listeners today. 
Absolutely. And thank you for being vulnerable. Um, you know, it began 40 plus years ago. My family is one of the ones we pass on the street. We lived at Grand Central. We lived in the park. We lived at the Port Authority and we lived nowhere. I was born into homelessness and stayed there for 11 years in New York City. Um, my mom is mentally ill. She's still, still so. And I have a brother and a sister slightly older than me. And the four of us just went from place to place looking for home and suffering through violence and abuse and just a perpetual state of hunger and fear. Around 11, 12, we went into foster care, which I was very excited about at first. I worked very hard to get us out of my mom's custody because of the violence and neglect. But foster care became, you know, I thought I'd reached the bottom of Dante's Inferno, but there's a basement. Mm. And I, I dove deep. Um, I was put into a group home, a delinquency facility for queer kids. Um, uh, we were segregated from normal kids. And all the other kids in the facility were, were normal or, or straight or presented as such. And I was the only gay kid in there. And because I couldn't be in a normal foster home, I, I was placed there and it was violent. Immediately I was assaulted and it began um, six years with one exception of just endless foster homes that abused me in different ways. Uh, I had one great foster mom, Holly, who's, who uh, raised her hand as not a foster mom. She just was out in the world and saw me and she stepped up and did her best to get me and ultimately did. Short story long, I left foster care at 17. I decided to get the hell out of Dodge and committed fraud on a grant for an exchange program and got the grant and I went abroad to Spain to study biochemistry, la bioquimica, and earth sciences. And I began my, my career. I went to Vassar and then UCLA School of Law to study entertainment law and public interest law. So it's been uh, quite a life. I think of it as like Forrest Gump meets hillbilly elegy crashes into precious, <laughs> if those mean anything to your listeners. Um, but I, I live a great life and I'm very, very happy. You know, when we first met, I would never have known this about you. And I knew that you were an advocate for foster care and you started and are very involved in a lot of organizations um, about poverty and 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 just an advocate for um for for kids and for kids' welfare. But I never knew the depth of like what you had gone through. And it's just it's remarkable that you are where you are. Mm. You know, for many of the guests that I have, I I asked them a question about their upbringing and their childhood and how that has influenced their path to becoming an activist mm. or a philanthropist. And most people say, oh, well, I saw, you know, socially responsible behavior modeled for me. And so that's what I grew up with. And that's why I give back. Mm -hmm. I mean, your situation is so different. Can you talk a little bit about sort of the what motivated you? I mean, you could have you could have yeah. fallen apart, but you didn't. I mean, I think there's a couple different facts. I mean, one, we have to design a system that lifts all people out of poverty. My family is very messy. I'm a very messy person. All humans are very messy. And the unique circumstances that, that got me to talk to you today on this fabulous podcast are not going to lift up whole peoples. The reality is 8.6 million kids live in abject poverty. 8.6 million in this country. More than 50% of American schools are Title I, which means the kids are hungry when they go home. So we have to do big things. What motivated me on a day-to-day -day basis as a child was the need to survive. I mean, the places we were were not safe and my mom was not safe and we were hungry. 
So the immediate needs that we had led me to really focus on what could get my family through the next minute. And the question I'd always ask is like, is this world going to hurt me? And it wasn't an if, it was a when mm. and how bad. And then what would I do? And then foster care, very similarly, it was, um, I always felt like there was something at the end of all this. And I just had to keep my eyes on that. And I, I withdrew into myself deeply to protect uh, the core of who I am from all the violence of these people that I experienced in foster care. I think part of it is certainly that um, I had a brother and a sister. I consider them my bookends. They kept me upright and vice versa. Um, my mom, despite everything, inculcated a deep value in education, even though I never went to school pretty much for 12 mm. years. Um, she would say things like, you're going to be a Supreme Court judge. And it was really meaningful to me. And then kind of strangely, New York City was my other parent. So a lot of folks, Broadway, mm. <laughs> you know, know this city. I grew up in the city at a very different time. And um, I would walk through the city and just be a pane of glass away from a meal. I would see people eat at restaurants or go into a theater. Mm. And we were just on the street. And I always thought, gosh, I don't want the situation that I'm in. How do I get out of this and over to that? And it's not about the accumulation of wealth. It was about more than survival. Could I get to that place? David, your book, your story is so heartbreaking. And especially for someone who's your friend and who knows you, but you know, it's also very hopeful and it's very inspirational. And I, I, and that's how you are, you know, you are um, such a go-getter and you are always, you know, pushing people to do their best. And it seems like that also was instilled in you very young. And, yeah. you know, as you said, your mom had mental health issues, but there were clearly some values that she, you know, she gave you that pushed yeah. you in that way and that gave you that hope and that inspiration. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, my mom suffers from a, a really profound mental health issue, mental illness. And I think in our country, mental health is still kind of the scarlet A. There's a lot of shame associated with it. And I think we're starting to deal with that. But my mom has been trapped in a prison for 80 years. I profoundly love my mom. And I have many times over forgiven my mom for behavior that she couldn't control. What I think I try and do in the book, and, and thank you for saying so, is to remind folks my mom's behavior or the foster parents that hurt me is, is not the worst of it. The worst of it is the benign neglect from the general public. We haven't used the word child poverty in a presidential debate since 1999. There are 424,000 foster kids, 8 million plus kids living in poverty, and all we do is talk about coal miners, which is important, but there's a couple thousand of them. We have to center kids, and so what I try and do with my story is to inspire people to believe, first of all, that it's our problem and our opportunity. Mm -hmm. These are our children, and we have the opportunity to lift them up. Um, especially foster kids who are legitimately, everyone who's listening, who is in America, these are your kids. And we could stop the cycle of violence if we only cared enough to pay attention and to start to take some action. The other thing is, there's some weird thing that has gone on in my life where Americans have stopped believing we can do big things together. And I don't understand that and I don't believe in it. My life is a manifestation of the impossible. And yet here I sit. Mm -hmm. My mom has three children with graduate degrees Thank you, foster care. Thank you, America. Now let's do better and more. And I, I want people to realize that politics and policy is the sandbox. Government is the sandbox with which we play with each other. And we have to do better and curate it better. Voting 
every four years does not make this a republic. It doesn't make you an active citizen. It is the reason we have 8.4 million, 8.6 million children in poverty. We have to be more sophisticated consumers of politics, just like we are with TikTok and Instagram mm -hmm. and all the other things we've learned how to do. I probably know lyrics to almost every Broadway show <laughs> from last season. And I think we can figure things out. We have an amazing capacity as people when we care and love music to, to tell these stories and share stories. So I wanted to share my story in the only way I knew to hopefully kind of encourage people to believe in each other, to believe in these kids and families and to do something. And if you're not sure what to do, go to my website. Uh, and there's stuff there that, that helps you figure that out. How can we specifically help with regard to poverty and homelessness, mental illness, food insecurity, foster care, and the issues that you and your family faced? So first is what I just said, which is please believe that we have the power as a country, as a people to do these things. The other realization is people are messy. I think everyone on this everyone listening to this pod knows their own messiness in their own life and their family's life. So to expect people in poverty to be less messy and better quote unquote behaved is absurd. What I think of when I think of poverty programs is like a person drowning off the side of my boat and I am the country and I reach into the water and I pull the person out of the water and they take a deep breath <gasps> and then I let them go uh. <laughs> and they fall back into the water. And then another program comes along and lifts them out of the water for a hot second. How can a person who doesn't have an address apply for benefits? How? Right. How can a person who's mentally ill fill out paperwork for four different agencies? We can do better. We can do better. We have to lift up these people. And how do we do that? Number one, believe we can. Number two, start asking questions. A lot of meetings since COVID are digital. Your public meetings, log in, submit a comment. The other thing I would say is there's a ladder of engagement I'm offering people. You don't have to save every person you walk past in distress. In fact, maybe you shouldn't. We all have lives. However, can you start at the lowest level? Can you care? And how can care manifest? I'm running a campaign right now called Donate Your Small Talk. So Donate Your Small Talk is very media. It's very Hollywood mm. or Broadway. And the <laughs> idea is when you get in the elevator, now we're back, or you get on a Zoom and you're like, how was your weekend? How are the kids? No one actually cares the answer to that question. It's kind of filler. What if instead we start talking about something that matters like children and foster care, for instance? So for I get an elevator, I'll say something like, hey, did you know Steve Jobs was adopted <laughs> out of foster care? Hey, did you know Coco Chanel was a foster kid or Babe Ruth or Willie Nelson? And it doesn't have to be specific to celebrity, but look up some fun facts and start talking about kids. And that is the lowest level. We can start to care. We can start to talk about a people that are invisible right in front of us. Invisible right in front of us. It's so true. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family 
cannolis and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. I like the idea of the small talk and just making it <laughs> sort of not normalizing it, but yeah. just talking about it, right? Yeah. Just making it more top of mind for people. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, on this, you gave such an example, like you were one of those kids on the street that we pass and many people yeah. look away, they avert their eyes, right? Some yeah. people will, you know, offer a bagel or, you know, some change or whatever, you know, what what do you think people should do? Or what do you think would be helpful? Not should do, but what yeah. would be helpful to that child or to that family in that moment? Well, I kind of jokingly say that Hamilton was America's first foster kid, right? Right. Uh, grew up with relatives. That's <laughs> <laughs> kinship foster care. Yeah. Um, what should people do? First of all, great question. And you should ask yourself that question. I have the right answer, then I have the David answer. So the right answer is support politics and policy and politicians and nonprofits that are doing whole systems work. You have Covenant House, you have so many great charities in New York and across the country that are doing this work. Ask questions of your electeds. When you walk by someone on the street, it's really challenging. It feels like you just don't even want to look or when they're begging at the side of your car. I know the right answer is not to give to individuals, but to give to charities that are doing this work. I can't not give to kids. I can't. And, you know, that's my own my own stuff. Mm-hmm. But I remember when a dollar would determine my whole day mm-hmm. if I ate or my family ate or we had a place to go. So I can't walk by. But the right answer is still part of the answer, which is to support great people, great organizations doing really thoughtful work to lift people out. If you don't know how to find them, ask. But I think we all know how to use the internet. Find those organizations and help them. Find the candidates that are talking about these kids and support them. And for me, I will never pass a child and not give. Wow. I just want to thank you for sharing your story. And I just, everybody should read this book. It's so amazing. Um, I I want to pivot for a second and talk a little bit about um your career your time yeah. i mean you you grew up in this you know sort of so challenging environment you turned yourself around you got a law degree um i think part of the reason you got a law degree was so that you could actually understand the laws that govern the issues that you went through but then you took your degree and you sort of twisted it into like entertainment and social responsibility. And so I want to talk about your time at Disney because that's where yeah. we met. Um, and I, I, you know, you were head of corporate um, social responsibility. So I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that time and what some of your most memorable uh, work was and maybe some of the work that you look back on and think, oh, that was really important. I'm so proud of that. Well, the moment I met you, highlight Aww, of career. So uh, and here we are a decade <laughs> later. Um, when I got to Disney, it was a realization that no one had a better answer than I did to what it meant for a company like Walt Disney Television to give back. At the time, it was rubber chicken dinners and cellophane wrapped DVDs sent to the silent auctions. And I looked at us and I thought, you know, our superpower is storytelling. We should be using our superpower, not this other thing. 
And so I began to work with the current and development executives. I began to work with producers and directors to start to look at issues of representation and what we could include that were kind of hidden right in front of us. So we worked really hard to increase and encourage storytelling around issues like, for example, religion or people with disabilities. Almost no one on television at the time had a visible disability, yet something like 30% of Americans have a visible disability. We've made a whole people of every race and ethnicity and gender invisible. How is that possible? I don't think it's ill intent, but what we began to realize that is if you use your superpower thoughtfully, you could really, really change values in our society. And that's what's so powerful about every type of storytelling, musicals, Broadway, plays, radio. It has the power to shape cultures and values. And I really began to try and do that with our content. I didn't wag my finger at an incredible exec producer, but we began to meet with them and be like, hey, did you know, have you ever heard of Gina Davis Media Institute? Have you heard what they're doing around the portrayal of women and girl? Do you want to look at their guidelines? Because maybe you could work harder to blah. And it worked because these are people that care too. And the mm -hmm. moment you started pointing them towards the right way, it was a stampede. It takes ongoing work like that. And in particular around foster care and child welfare, I really worked hard, much like GLAAD, if folks are familiar with GLAAD, to focus on the portrayal of biological families, foster families, foster kids, orphans, because so often it's such a two-dimensional portrayal where the biological family is horrible, the social worker is a disaster, mm. and the kids, once you adopt them, will murder you. I think we can do better because stories create that value and that expectation. So I've worked for 12 years now, 10, 12 years, to change the way that Hollywood and other places portray foster care and adoption and the whole community. Disney, I'm very proud of the, the, the almost decade plus that I served there in doing this groundbreaking work, which continues after me and has been duplicated by other major entertainment companies. Because so many people in Hollywood and Broadway, I imagine it's the same, kind of circulate amongst the different companies. And they've taken what we've started and brought it with them. And I'm really, really proud of that legacy. And I decided to go with CSR as opposed to like a litigator because corporate social responsibility because when I really thought about the world and I thought about where is where is the problem most easily and readily addressed, to me, it's the storytelling. It's the stories we tell ourselves. It's what we focus on. It's the expectations we create when I watch Modern Family about mm -hmm. what a family looks like. It's, it's all of those things that we slowly and subtly change our culture. And I thought, gosh, I could work at a bank. I could work at a law firm. I could do all these things. Or I could be at the biggest engine a positive change potential in the world, which is media and entertainment. And so that's where I focused my energy for the first decade plus of my career. And now you're at Amazon and you're working yes. in community engagement projects. Mm -hmm. So just, and actually we had lunch not too long ago and you were telling me about, cause it was new. So how's it going? And like, what kind of yeah. projects are you working on? And, and, and what does that actually, what does that actually mean? And how does that sort of help make the world a better place? Sometimes I do, I do feel like Forrest Gump. Like I am, I went from one amazing company to another amazing company that I feel like is inventing the future. And as I mentioned, when I thought about earlier in my career, where to, where to go to best use my passion, I've thought the same thing in this second part of my career. I'm not old, I'm, I'm early old. And <laughs> I wanted to me. be with, yeah, well, I wanted to work with a company that was inventing the future. And I wanted to learn a new skill set. And I have had about a year 
of working within this operation. And much like the Walt Disney Company, just a complete embrace of my rather unusual approach and passion to do to try things, to do things. And it has been amazing. I've brought some of the same ideas in terms of populations to serve. And a lot of work is already being done, but I continue to be very much myself inside this amazing giant company in doing the work. And I found nothing but support from, from the people I work with. In fact, um, they could not be more supportive of, of my memoir. They're, they're hosting parties for me coast to coast and mm. have put me on blast on their, on all their feeds. I'm, I'm so proud to work at this company and they have also just fully embraced uh, this memoir and who I am and why I, I think I exist and survived my life. That's so nice to hear. Well, as this is a Broadway-related podcast, I wanted to ask yes. you a few theater-related Please. questions. Please. I'm so, so excited. I was trying to remember. We went and saw, what show was it we saw right before the pandemic? Do you remember? I saw, I think I talked to you right before I saw Inheritance. Right. But we saw a show together. I'm trying to remember what show oh that was. Oh, my gosh. Was it Moulin Rouge, maybe? Yes. It was, I right? loved it. Yeah, I thought yeah. this. I thought I was on the stage. Everything was out on top of me, and I yeah. loved it. I was yeah. like, "Oh my god, it's yeah. amazing!" So, what would be your favorite or most memorable, or one of your favorite or most memorable yeah. sort of Broadway shows or moments? Well, so I'm going to tell you two. But the first one is when I was in foster care. I was in a very uh, bad situation in some of my homes, and one was particularly bad, and. Uh, they were they were aggressively trying to fix my um, sexual orientation, and it was really painful. And I heard about the show called Rent, <laughs> <laughs> and it was I don't even remember what year it was, but I think it came out in '96. And I stole away and took a greyhound or Peter Pan, if you're familiar in the, yeah. in, the in the Northeast. I took a greyhound equivalent bus to Boston. And I structured my whole day so I could go see this musical. And I walked out gobsmacked. Mm. Um, you know, I grew up in New York City in the 80s where we were in shelters where a lot of men were dying and they were covered in lesions and abandoned. And that was my upbringing. And to go from that to see this beautiful musical portrayal of love and, and just great music, it really um, breathed life into me at a key moment of my life. And I would say most recently, Hamilton, to be perfectly honest, I feel, not to sound egotistical, but I feel kindred with an individual who literally wrote my way out <laughs> from yeah. my college essay to what I try to do with this book, but to live a life of purpose and dream big and trying to achieve things. And a lot of my friends kind of make fun of me. They say, I got no chill. So I feel <laughs> such a kindred um, spirit with with someone who wanted to change the world. A. Ham, that's you too. <laughs> <laughs> Shall I sing? Is that the end of this podcast? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I'll, I'll spare everybody. <laughs> but I do, I do want to know, like, what advice would you give people listening as to how they could become what I like to call sort of everyday philanthropists or everyday activists. You know, it's overwhelming wow. and different guests have given lots of different kinds of advice. And I just wondered, you know, your perspective is so different. And I wondered what kind of advice you would give people. I think it's really, you know, you come to a fork in the road, everyone always says, and I think that's bull. I think you come to a fork in the road and then you decide to carve your third path. That's the one that's for you. Yeah. And that's what you should do. I think people need to find their way forward into an issue that, that brings them joy and fulfillment. 
I also encourage people to realize that giving back can advance not just your, your heart quotient, but your career. The connections you make with authentically engaging with the cause, the people you meet are really going to be some of your best advocates in all aspects of your life. So it's a good thing to do, and it's the good thing to do in so many ways. And the best way to engage is not to focus on the issue that you have no interest in, but in my opinion is to, to jump in where you can, and then to look at the resources you have and make a decision. I have friends in my life, as, as you do, that are incredibly powerful, and all they want to do, as I do locally, is I actually volunteer at a shelter before COVID, and once a year I go in with friends and I clean the kitchen. I don't interact with the kids and families that live there, but I do a deep scrub of the kitchen. And I'm there with friends. We listen to music, um, usually Madonna or Broadway <laughs> musicals. Um, and that's what I do. But I also serve on the planning. I served on the planning commission for 10 years and I was appointed by the mayor. Find where your passion is in a general area and do that. And then decide really, do I want to use my skills as a professional? Like if you're in the communications, do I want to help a nonprofit redo the communications? Do I want to help them fundraise? Nonprofits eat what they raise. So we can't collectively all be like, oh gosh, another rubber chicken dinner. We got to go to the rubber chicken dinner because mm -hmm. the covenant house needs our love. So find out if you want to work within a cause, find out the best way you want to be there, either with your skill set or just your humanity. And then also push yourself. I can't tell you when I was coming up as a gay professional how hard it was to find a mentor that just wanted to mentor me and guide me and make introductions and bring me on, uh, bring me to events. Push yourself a little bit beyond your comfort and and get into that space if you think if you think you can. The other reality is all of us are limits have limits. Respect those, but push them. Um, so I think there's many different ways forward. I of course think all of you listeners should be involved in child welfare and foster care. Um, so I think you should go to my website, which will be on the link, but, and, and get involved there at the very least, everyone listening can start donating their small talk immediately. Look up some fun, interesting facts. If you don't know any, ask me, ask her and we'll tell you <laughs> some, but immediately we should start talking about kids and families because they need us to. That is a perfect way to end this podcast. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for sharing your story. Thank you for doing all the work that you do. And I love you, David Ambrose. It's a mutual love affair. And thank you for the platform and for sharing my story with your listeners. It's something you didn't have to do and it's a beautiful gift. So thank you. Oh, I had to do it. I felt it inside. I had to do it. It's such a beautiful story. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Broadway Gives Back podcast. Broadway Gives Back is part of the Broadway Podcast Network. Special thanks to my producing partner, writer, editor, and friend, Jim Lochner. And thank you to everyone at BPN, including Dory Berenstein, Alan Seals, and Kimberly Garris. I'd also like to thank Julian Hills from the Bulldog Agency and Eric Becker from Broderick Street Music. If you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe and rate this podcast wherever you stream your podcasts. You can also follow Broadway Gives Back on Facebook and Instagram at Broadway Gives Back Podcast and on Twitter at Broadway Gives. To learn more, visit bpn.fm slash Broadway Gives Back. Thanks so much. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theater Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work 
or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R E R I S E T H E A T R E dot org because only together we rise. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.